0: of Reflection. Oh, sorry. Um, that's the other one. Have <laughs> oh, I printed the wrong one? That would be really funny. Won't it? No, I haven't. Right. Um, diversity and Representation. I was just about to read the title of the previous event. Diversity and Representation. I'd like to formally and respectfully begin our event this evening by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we are today, the Wurundjeri, Kulam people, one of the five tribes of the I'd like to welcome you all here to Southampton. So our office is actually directly above us um, here. It's rather lovely to be able to have the welcoming with you where we actually live, um, and to a, a very full and exciting program of speakers that we have here this afternoon. We're looking forward to exploring works that respond to our Bucketing down, I actually wondered if anybody would come (laughs) tall. So we only see quite a few people, and we have a number of names that haven't been collected, but it is so wonderful. Please do help yourself to refreshments um, throughout the afternoon if you desperately need an extra coffee or something to eat. And feel free to ask questions as we go. We do have a very tight program, but I'm sure our presenters won't mind if you put your hand up if you have a good question. Um, I hope you've all had a chance to already browse the bookshop. You'll notice that we have both Reading's and Wild Dog here represented. So please do make uh, make the opportunity to make a Pleasure to welcome our first guest speaker for the afternoon, Aller Bellati. is a secondary school librarian at Ivanhoe Grammar School, a keen reader across all genres and a YA fiction enthusiast. She's a freelance book reviewer for books and publishing magazine. Has written about school reading programs and initiatives in Slabs Journal. FYI, she's also on the of the committee, a member and co-convener of the Slav Northern Branch, and she's the current CBCA Book of the Year judge for Eve Carmell. Informational in category, and it is with that hat on that we asked
1: her to present
2: to us today. Welcome, so to Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. So, um, thank you for coming. Awful night, but I'm so glad to see so many faces here. Uh, time is tight, so I'm going to start straight away. Happy to take questions. Um, I know I can do this in 15 minutes, so let's just plough through. Okay, so diversity and representation in non-fiction through the lens of the CBCA and in particular Eve Powell category, which is the information book category, which um, is very specific and different to the fiction category. Um, What I would like to start first though is talking about the reader experience, just a little bit of uh, context here before we get to the books that I want to highlight. So I'm sure you're all very familiar with the uh, seminal work of Bishop from 1990, a long time ago now, Uh, Mirrors, windows, and sliding glass doors, whereby she talks about the reading experience in these metaphorical ways. So, a reader can be reading the book, uh, looking into a mirror, basically seeing themselves and their experiences. Deeper still, they look into a window and therefore into the lives of others. And deeper again, the sliding glass doors, whereby readers not only sort of walk into those lives but are walking in the shoes of others. Now, you know, this is absolutely relevant today as it was back in 1990, and especially in fiction, as we know, that seems to be the main sort of reading for pleasure, that in our school libraries uh, tend to be promoted. But when it comes to non-fiction, I would say even more so, this reader experience. Now, I've been reading YA fiction for over 10 years, and I love it, it's one of my favourite readerships, and um, I've seen it. Really developed just in the last you know, six, seven years compared to ten years ago. There's a lot more diversity and um, representation in these books. It's grown, it's developed. But I have to be honest and tell you, it still sometimes seems a little bit tokenistic and a little bit othering. Okay. Um, this said, real stories and non-fiction. I really feel there is an opportunity there for authors to provide that opportunity of an an authentic and genuine voice in their stories. So it doesn't actually seem so much like ticking the boxes. It's just my thoughts. Um, Non-fiction fantastic as a uh, resource for school, curriculum, teaching purposes, and also for reading for pleasure. I don't know in your school libraries, but we really push non-fiction as another option for reading because not everybody sees themselves as a reader of a book. But, hey, a non-fiction book... Um, a real story, a biography, whatever, across so many different subject areas can really just engage students. So definitely on the rise. Now, what can creators of non-fiction for children do? They have a power. Okay, they can bring diversity and representation to their stories. Okay, um, I, to click now. I was saying I was going to use the clicker and then I didn't. Um, so they can bring diversity and representation to their stories By doing this they can provide an authentic and purposeful voice to a topic They can get their own narrative and lived experiences out there They can show readers what's beyond the traditional stereotypes And this is really important because you know, we don't want those cookie cutter characters Cookie cutter plot lines and settings you know Our readers are savvy, they can see the fake So if it's not done right and authentically they can see through it you know um, yeah it's not just us as adults it's about kids um, so further to that they can bust myths they can you know legends and speculation they can actually provide the facts and set the stories straight Now creators of nonfiction for children really importantly have an opportunity to introduce um, and explore difficult challenging and confrontational topics okay in an appropriate using accessible language for their audiences and furthermore from there, they can normalise hard or taboo topics and really bring them to the fore, okay? And I guess final point there is that they can engage their readers with their different formats, okay, for the different age groups. Really, really interesting way of presenting different topics in different ways and engage different audiences. So, judging. Judging is fantastic. I've been a judge for two years. Um, it has its challenges uh, in the... Um, Eve Palmer category, I guess the main challenges, if you want to call them that, is the age group that we're judging for. So we go from 0 to 18 years of age in terms of the books that we're reading. And it's the variety of the topics and the formats of the books that are submitted to us. Now, though I call those challenges, conversely, it is the best part of the job, okay? Every month I get a box of books from the CDCA head office to read, to judge, and I'm stunned always at the variety that comes through. I've never once been bored with a book because, you know, it's amazing what they're bringing through to us and uh, what creators are doing. And just as a side note, um, if you are interested in judging, the CBA is open to applications at the moment, so jump onto the CBCA website uh, and look for information there. Anyway, back to business. Everything that comes to the uh, Eve Panel category must uh, basically address... The prime purpose of the category, which is to document factual material. Okay. Now, we have, um, you know, we have subjective ways of reading, of course, but we also have guidelines and criteria that we have to follow. So, in our category, we've got a couple of criteria that can, in particular, apply to the diversity and representation element, okay, that we're talking about tonight. So, one of them is that the book rectifies historical distortions and/or omissions. And also that the presentation of the topic um, is authentic and non-stereotypical, you know, inclusive of the illustrative content, because it's not just about the written narrative and language. So uh, we read and assessed 72 books this year for the 2022 Book of the Year Awards, and what I'm going to present now are the titles that stood out, um, that stood out in particular because of their creative and engaging terms, uh, in terms of, sorry, that stood out in terms of their diversity and representation in a really engaging way, okay, and some of those reasons I listed earlier, but you know, sometimes there's that X factor that just makes a book pop out for those reasons as well. And full disclosure, uh, when I was asked to speak on this topic, I knew exactly which books I wanted to include, but I did also do a call out to my co-judges. There are three judges on the panel, and I asked them what they thought which were the books they wanted me to be able to talk about and why. So this really is a collaborative effort of what I'm about to show you. Um, But I do want to emphasise as an introduction to the titles that the commonality amongst all of the books I'm going to show you is that they have this authenticity of voice, okay, and that the genuine intent and purpose in sharing their knowledge is across all of these books. Really, really important. It's not just ticking a box scenario with these books. So we've got here. Some extra notes. All right. So all of these books on the screen are produced by Indigenous creators, and they've either worked solo or in teams uh, collaboratively, and that could be with other Indigenous creators or even non-Indigenous. They've used, as you can see from the covers, in the main the picture story uh, picture book format, okay, to engage younger readers. The longer, more referency type books here, so Wiradjuri Country and the First Scientists. They are still for that younger audience, but they contain lots of colour and non-conventional layouts and visuals to really sustain that reader interest, because they're good ones for dipping in and out of, you know, you don't need to read them from, you know, cover to cover. So, just highlighting some of those titles, Heroes, Rebels and Innovators, the lovely ochre colour book at the top there, that was actually uh, an honour book by us this year. It highlights the previously unrecognised significance and contributions of Indigenous people. And I like to call this book a a two-for-one. It's got fantastic uh, double narrative. You've got uh, the poetic uh, adventure story of what these notables did, followed by the biographical information. Love that book, and that really popped out when I opened the box, I have to say. Um, Kunye, just next to it, was a notable. Now, this is the personal story of of the Stolen Generation and its impact. Now, this is a really, you know, this is a heavy theme. It's a a tricky theme, and it's for young children. But the way it's been presented for young children is fantastic. It's highly engaging, short vignettes of stories with really bright visuals and really accessible language, you know, like dinner time, playtime, meeting families. So a really good way of introducing a tricky topic of our recent history. Um, We've got four stories up here, or four books up here, that really emphasise... Uh, connections with environment, language, customs, and story. So, in particular, we're looking at Walking at Gagaju Country, which was um, a shortlist book. We've got Wiradjuri Country, Sea Country, and Somebody's Land. Um, Freedom Day and Albert Nabajira, okay, really creatively presented biographical accounts of famous Indigenous people, but within the white historical, artistic, and political contexts. So we're not just talking in general, in history, these people existed. It's like the importance as to why and how their, you know, their lives mattered and what they did and the legacies. And the final one there, The First Scientist at the bottom, uh, that was a short list of books. So this is the, presenting the scientific pursuits and achievements of Indigenous people, both in ancient and modern times. And a great portion of that content in that book is unknown and previously unrecognised. It's thoroughly researched, the authors really had... Um, real intent and purpose in putting that book together as a a reference book, I guess. So all of these books are information-rich, they're highly engaging and imaginatively presented. Right. These two books have used... Sorry, these two authors have used the graphic novel format uh, to bring challenging and complex topics to readers in a very accessible manner. So these books... Basically, it's all about the visuals, okay? So the visual diversity of the characters, and I'm going to call them characters because even though they're true people, real people, they are characters in a story, and they're really brought to life in this medium. So the winning book this year for the EP category was Still Alive. And the author, Safta Ahmed, he really gets to the heart of the real experiences of refugees and asylum seekers, both prior to arrival in Australia and once here and whilst in detention. He addresses the misconceptions that refugees have got a real choice about fleeing uh, their country. Um, It's thoroughly, thoroughly researched and the author is genuinely authentic in his purpose in getting this information across and he's still actually very active uh, at Villawood Detention Centre to this day. Um, This book took about 10 or 12 years to produce, okay? And in that time he had lots of conversations, interactions with the detainees and so he's actually used personal stories and their artwork in this book, and they provide further examples of the diversity and representation of their own voices. It's a very powerful book. Um, Underground, another graphic novel, so by Miranda Burton. This time she is intertwining stories based on real people and events in the military, political, social and cultural history of Australia, basically from the Vietnam War, middle of the 60s onwards. Once again, very well-researched. Interviews. She includes all these interviews and these visual layouts on her pages with uh, veterans and anti-war activists and refugees that show their struggles, their courage, their resistance and persistence. Um, She really brings social activism to the fore, so getting young readers interested in the politics, in what was going on and what's wrong, what's right about it all. And all of those additional perspectives from those characters, characters once again, um, you know, really bring that lived experience um, to readers now these books are definitely for teen readers and I would even say older teen readers especially for still alive but they provide that really visually creative way for them to step into the shoes of others so really taking that metaphor of the sliding glass doors uh, to the max okay and my final slide okay final slide as you can probably see there there is a big variety and that's exactly what I'm going to talk about We have got a variety of different formats, different topics, and different audiences, okay? Not all of these books made it through all the the stages of the awards, okay? Um, Some of these books, we read them. Every book has to get read and have a written report about them. But it doesn't mean that they're not worthy contenders in terms of books and what they can be providing readers. Um, So some of the creators of these books... Are bringing their lived experiences, okay, and/or their genuine areas of interest to the readers. Some are raising the profiles of those that have come before, correcting history. Others are bringing the lesser known into our current world, so that we have new readers who are learning about these things and maybe go on and do further exploration. So the very first one, I'm going to look at the top row first. Dancing with Memories might seem like a strange one to put in there, but us three judges really felt it was worth mentioning. It's really focusing on health and in particular dementia as a topic. You You know, we hear about it on the news, young kids hear about it on the news, families are living with it. And the collaborators of this book, which is really interesting in itself, we've got medical doctors, we've got celebrities and philanthropists, all coming together to bring this story of a grandmother who's losing her way and a granddaughter understanding, trying to understand what it's all about. So bringing the facts and the information to the fore and not making it some hidden thing that shouldn't be talked about. Um, yeah, so and it's really got that. Um, Box ladies of sport, so completely different again. This is be what you can see, okay? Diversity across different sporting spheres. We have people here, including uh, people with physical disabilities, learning disabilities, uh, LGBT plus community, people of colour, all represented in that book. Uh, you can live on the bright side. Now, I have to be honest, And when I opened the box and pulled this book out, I thought, oh, well, here we go, it's a self-help book. Nothing disparaging about self-help. But this is so much more than that. This book really brings kids' stories, like in their words, they're telling them, that encourage conversation and optimism around mental health. Okay? So it's really normalising and destigmatising mental health struggles. Showing people everyone deals with this in different ways. Here are different ways that you can be, you know, dealing with it, talking about it, and once again bringing it to the fore. Um, bottom left, Born to Run and Sister Secrets. So Born to Run is the picture book edition of Freeman's um, earlier prose memoir. Now she, I think this is her third or fourth iteration of her story. Okay, for different audiences, I've seen different versions of things. Out there, she's really owning her narrative. She doesn't want anybody else telling her story. So she is putting this out now for in the picture book format. Um, Sister Secrets, similarly, these swimmers have had their lives, their teen years, you know, in the spotlight. You know, the media has basically given them their story. So they're turning it around, they're owning their own story. Their book is written for teens, they have been teens. So they're talking about um, their story of identity. Of feelings, of struggles, and once again, showing people that they can be, you know, what, what they're experiencing is being experienced by others. So they're taking away the media spotlight completely there. And these final two books drove up in Rachel's War, completely different to all the rest. So these are historical non-fiction uh, books, bringing to life previously lesser known or unknown people in history. So Drover is all about a woman, Drover, less known uh, in pioneering history I guess in the Outback Australia. and Rachel's War is a World War I nurse and her life struggles post and uh, pre and post the war. Just before I round off, I do want to mention that, interestingly, a lot of these authors are also now starting to write repeat books in these sort of subject areas. So really, I guess, emphasising the fact that they want these stories out there, that it's not just a one-trick pony, oh, here's a book about a World War I nurse, or here's a book about women in sport. So, for instance, uh, Philip Master, who wrote the sport book, has produced one which is Women Boss Ladies in Science, okay? So bringing the scientific community and women up front and centre. Um, you can live on the bright side. Lucy Bell, she's really into sustainability, wellness of body, wellness of planet, and our place in it, and is writing books in that way. Um, Rachel's War by Michael Wilson. Uh, Mike Wilson. He um, he has just recently written a very similar type of layout book on the suffragettes. So once again, bringing our history up to the current day for our new readers to learn about and explore. So to conclude, these 18 books that I have shown. Um, very, very briefly, are uh, terrific examples of diversity and representation in non-fiction that's been published just in Australia only in the last 18 months. Okay. Now, the creator's use in all of these books is authentic and purposeful, uh, as is their voice, uh, and the stere- non-stereotypical um, presentation make them really, really genuinely an enriching, reading experience. And I definitely would say it's an, an upward trend. I'm going to stop there. Am I in time? You're amazing. <laughs> You're amazing. <No. laughs> uh, uh, I could keep going, but I won't. Mm-hmm. So hopefully if you have any questions, happy to uh, answer. I'm happy to make this presentation available to you with all my notes. So that's no drama either. But um, hopefully we'll take something away there and you might even have some other perspectives or uh, comments that you would like to make and share. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so yes.
0: much. And know are She's going to run away. Oh, Here we are. Oh. This is a small token. Oh, thank you.
3: Um, thank you, Alida.
0: I knew she'd fit so much into such a short amount of time. And Alida has given me her presentation, which I will attach as a PDF when I email you after the event. So you'll all be able to have that to have a look at. And there
2: are references in Of course
0: there is, because she's a wonderful librarian. That's right, isn't it? Because she's... A, so, of course, there are references. Thank you, Alida. You're very generous and very knowledgeable. We appreciate you taking the time to speak to us today. So it is my... Um, I'm very thrilled to be able to introduce our next guests to who are going to speak to us about their creation and important message from Mr Beaky. Um, And Mr Beaky's up there, I believe, at the table, which is very exciting. Um, Cassie Leatham is from the... um, Apologies for the pronunciation. Toongarung, people from the Kulin Nation. She is an Indigenous artist, master weaver, traditional dancer. Oh, are we going to get all of that today? No? Um, uh, bush Tucker woman and educator She is extremely passionate about teaching her skills To both indigenous and non-indigenous students of all ages And she's been joined by Sue Lawson Who I'm sure is no stranger to many of you in this room She writes books for children and young adults And you'll be very aware of Sue's books for various ages Including The Biscuit Maker uh, The young adult novels Freedom Ride Which I do remember fondly uh, Pan's Whisper her books have been shortlisted and won various awards. She also uh, collaborates with uh, Boonwurrung Elder Auntie Faye Mua. Their books include the acclaimed picture books Respect and Family, the first two books in the Mugabala Our Place series, and also Naganga, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Words and Phrases. Welcome. We're so thrilled to have you here. Thank you very much. i like to come up. I don't think you have any
4: slides, so Thank you. <laughs> As you'll see, it's not um, starting us, it's stopping us, isn't it, Cassie? Oh, okay, I'll stop stop you there. (laughs) So you have to stop us. Hello, thank you. I'd like to start by just acknowledging that we are on the lands of the Wurundjeri people and how lucky we are to be here and what a beautiful place it is. Did
5: you want to add to that, Cassie? And um, acknowledging um, anyone that's also Aboriginal in this room, or not, um, what I just said is, hello, my name's Cassie Latham, I'm a Tungurong, a Zha Zha woman with connections to Wurwundjeri, I live on Gunai Kurnai Country, and I've had the pleasure to, um, to tell my story through a budgie that talks <laughs> Aboriginal <laughs> language, and it's absolutely incredible that I'm going to blow your mind today.
4: <laughs> <laughs> so now, just following on from that fabulous talk, thank you Talked about authentic, purposeful and non-stereotypical non-stereoty- That is this book and Cassie in one Cassie, let's talk about why we actually wrote this book Not so much about Mr Beaky, but the content of what we were trying to say
5: Yeah, well, being a cultural educator, I've got 35 years of, um, of teaching and travelling around country, and what what I found though when I was teaching that there was a lack of education in in um, telling our First Nations stories. So I was the first Aboriginal woman to actually put it in the curriculum all around Victoria. No one knows that, but um, I started off at Naval College, and I put the we called it Babal Kuyat Naragi, and that means bush um, tucker and cultural education. So um, starting off. Um, with connections and storytelling because we are the first storytellers, we are the first scientists, we're the first everything. But when I acknowledge country um, and pay my respects um, to the traditional owners, it's not people. People get it wrong. The, tradi- the traditional owners of country is our flora and fauna, our wildlife and country itself. We are the traditional custodians. You are custodians as well. So this is where, where my people get it wrong. And this is what I like to educate people in, but especially in this book here, these important messages. You read it, you think it's funny. It's not. It's actually true. You know, we've got to take care of country. We've got to look after each other. And we've got to educate about the history, but also to, to move on from it as well. So um, a lot of people come to me and they say, oh, okay, so why have you done this book with Mr. Beaky? It's hilarious, it's so funny, it's I love it, it's so cute and everything. I said, yeah, it's loving, it's cute and everything, but it's a very powerful story too, because there's not only history, there's um, there's my story as well in that. And Mr. Beaky is not just a budgie. He came to me for a reason, and that was to share my story, because as he says, and these are his words that he that you'll be seeing on ABC Australian Story next year we're filming just because I'm not green doesn't mean I can't be seen just because my mum's a fair-skinned Aboriginal doesn't mean she's Aboriginal she is we're both native to Australia because did you know that budgies were mutated and modified genetically, scientifically to selling pet shops all around the world I was modified too with colonisation my mum's white, my dad's black You know, I walk in the footsteps of my ancestors because that's how I've been brought up country yeah so picking up this little bush tucker woman and we'll placing her here in the city I feel very awkward yeah okay but should I no I shouldn't because I've, I've got a story to tell and
4: yes you're, you're promised Cassie sorry, I'd butt I'll in talk, <laughs> like she it. said <laughs> I talk too much make me stop I said I'll just butt I'm in I'm very like passionate it. I used to work for the ABC and used to interview politicians Cassie's easy <laughs> easy she only had to open her mouth I didn't have to say anything because that's really important in in trying to, in presenting it this way. It's making it a way that's accessible to kids. That Mr. Beek is a budgie, but he's blue. Yep. Budgies are actually green and gold. That doesn't mean he's not a budgie. So it brings that message, that colour thing. You know, got red hair can't possibly be Aboriginal. Yeah. It's, we're talking about that it's identity. breaking that identity. It's identity.
5: And that's the thing. You, you read the words and you go, oh, what, what are they on about? Um, I've struggled all my life with my identity. I've been brought <laughs> up black. Okay, you would absolutely fall over in in your seats if you knew how I lived a sustainable lifestyle. Okay, I'm actually wearing clothes tonight. Okay, (laughs) normally I don't. I've got my skis, No, I do. Okay, don't get me wrong. But the thing is, I'm not serious. Um, (laughs) Um, But the thing the thing is about um, you know identity. It's it's so apparent because. I, I'm absolutely not joking. You should see my emails and my messages on Instagram, especially Mr. Beaky's. I'm getting bombarded by teachers. This kid's brought in this book today and he's talking about Mr. Beakey and I'm not sure too. And, um, yeah, uh, so is Mr. Beaky. Like, he's blue, but he's still native to Australia. And, and they're so proud. Like, my mob's standing up, you know. This, this bird... So I know we didn't want to talk no, about we Mr talking, too much. You've got one minute of on the board. I know. But, <laughs> but the thing is, like, I'm not joking. This bird has powerful messages and he's blowing people away. The messages yes. I'm getting is about connection, is about community, is about passion, being passionate, passionate about teaching Aboriginal culture in schools. You know, but get it right, teachers. Get it right, you know. Find your community, your local Aboriginal community. Bring us in to share our stories because we are the first storytellers, and by the God, we can tell stories, yeah. Okay, and we also dance, yeah. We also we also do um, activities, uh, you know, as well as tell stories because that's our culture, yeah. And to be able to um, you know connect with this book, especially, um, yeah, it's it's something else again. Like it's it's something else, and when you meet him, you'll be blown away. There's opportunities coming up, and I'm going to get this in because this is really important. You'll think, oh, it's just a budget. He's the first known budget ever that's going to be hosting a three day workshop at the NGV. He? <laughs> <laughs>
4: He's actually quite. I, I had, I'd had i heard him on the phone, I had spoken on the phone oh, to I him a with Lee Barton, yeah. and um, when. I actually met Mr Beakey. We were at a function at the Koorie Heritage Trust. Now, I knew Cassie works with lots of kids. I knew she would be great with kids. Now, I'm a former teacher, you know, you're used to seeing people who are good with children. Cassie and Mr Beakey blew me away. I actually sat there with my mouth open, just watching these two connect. And the kids were just, you know, when you see them leaning in and they're just so involved, it was magic. And I think the reason that happens is because it's authentic and kids are ready to learn. And As educators, it's our job to find the authentic books to be able to help them, particularly with what is happening with the referendum and the Uluru Statement of the Heart. So, Cassie talked about getting local people in. There are so many people that will come in and talk to you. Find out who your local mob is. There's all sorts of different groups that will speak to you. Connect with Cassie, because we have got some resources out there. I can say it. Cassie mightn't want to. There are some resources out there that aren't... Genuine, let me just say, they're there to sell Ticker a book. Box yeah. Yeah, just, yeah,
0: they're,
5: they're
4: not, not. Yeah. If,
5: if you get me, mm. in, you got me. You got the bird, and you have got me whole day plus mm. overnight if you're willing to have me at your house.
4: <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's actually, but it's actually about culture. It's and not and about care. selling you're anything. It. It's about. I cook good. She does. Mm, she does. So that's that's where we're so proud of this book because it is with heart. Marup. Marup. I've been practising.
0: Yeah.
5: But this is this is the thing. It's also <laughs> educating. Um, I'm hoping the next book will have a QR code that you can click on and you can hear Mr Beaky say these phrases. But you can actually on log on to his Instagram <laughs> and you can oh, actually <laughs> oh, sorry, can I say that out loud. Um, you know, QR code. See, I'm thinking ahead, alright? Because I, I, want to, I want to make this something amazing. Because we don't know how long we've got on, on, you know, time or whatnot on our sleeves. We've got to make the most of our lives and like, Mr Big is not going to be around forever. I've got, I've got a, you know, he, he's here for a reason, and he's here to educate, and he's here to share his story, and by the goodness me, he, he can share if I tell you, but he don't stop talking. But, um, but did you know that he's got 1,469 words in Aboriginal, and he's, he's one of the top Aboriginal linguists in Victoria? <laughs> Which is amazing. And he's going to be in the Guinness World Record books as well. So
4: he's got, this little bird's going places, I'll yeah. you. Um, would anyone like to ask questions, not necessarily about this book, about resources that you use, about country, about terms, language, because trust you've just seen, I mangle the words all the time. Cassie Cassie's much kinder to me than Auntie Faye. Auntie Faye just goes, I'm trying. But you know, if there are questions, this is the time and a safe space to ask, whatever it is. You know, if you're wondering about something that you've how do I teach this, how do I do this? What sort of book should I use? Please ask because between the two of us, I'm going
5: to ask you in the yellow. What kind? mara
4: country for me. yeah yep, beautiful. Because yeah, awesome. these are the sort of things, you know, if you're wanting to start a conversation with kids, there you go. Yeah. Where, What country are you born in? What country do you live in?
1: Yeah.
4: Um, you know, what language can you use? Because getting people in to talk about language, this blew my mind did a little language activity in Geelong on what a on country where I live. And basically the language comes from country. You hear the word magpie's is pawong, which I'm not saying properly. Is that yeah, something right. like yeah. that? And when you hear the magpie's noise, you go, Of course it's parwong. What else would it be? It's like wow. And if we can connect a country, we're going to take better care of it. He says,
6: <laughs>
4: <laughs> That's not all he says. Know, yeah. Anyone got any questions that they'd like to ask?
5: Come on. Please I don't be. I know you're holding back. Don't I see be. You, want to, that, know, you want to hear Beaky beatbox, don't you? No, not no, now. No. No. <laughs> Actually, I just go that. And I said, uh, where did the name Beaky come from? Oh, do we have, how many hours do we have? No, no I've got to tell you, he named himself. He, I got him 12 weeks old. I can't tell you the whole story because right. it's going to take up the whole thing. It is an incredible story. He basically he, chose. He chose me. It. I walked into a pet shop. He flew out and he landed on me. I don't do pets. I'm like, get this thing mm-hmm. off me. I took him home. As I was taking him home, I said, Oh, my goodness, what am I going to call you? Like, you're beaking around everywhere. Like, because he didn't want to be in the cage, because he's a free flight bird. And I'm like, Oh, what am I going to call you? Oh, my goodness, mum's baby bird. What am I going to call you? And the next day, he said, My name's Mr Beaky. My mum's baby bird. And I rang up the pet shop, and I said, "Uh, (laughs) This bird's talking. And she said, It can't. It's only 12 weeks old, I said, It's talking. Uh, And then now he thinks he's Batman, because we watch Batman the other night. So you walk in the back door, and it's like... <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> Just, <exactly>. Just. <laughs> <laughs> no,
4: if you go to Cassie, you no, got to believe, Mr. Beaky. Oh,
5: really? <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> he sits on your glasses. Yes, yeah, sits on my glasses. Talks. He'll say, Woman, he does acknowledge, rent the country. So he's on cue. So tomorrow, when I go up to the, I've got St. Kevin's School coming on survival camp with me tomorrow, Mr. Beaky's in his backpack, but he does acknowledge, rent the country. He goes, Woman, Jekyll, Woman, um, My name's Mr. Beaky, this is my first being Aboriginal. My mum, my is bird, he calls me. And then he communicates. So you can ask him, like the kid asked me the other day, What did you have for breakfast, Mr. Beaky? He's like, No. It's <laughs> like, what? Yeah, he's crazy. But it's, it's, this is like ABC's story. Um, yeah, ABC's Melbourne have jumped on board because they've, they've been following my journey for nine months. Yeah. Going around to all schools. So he actually educates children. Mm-hmm. So he'll sit there up on top of his cage and goes, just because I'm not green doesn't mean I can't be seen. And he, he will say all different phrases, but then he'll communicate. So if you ask him, he'll, he'll answer you back. And he'll say that he's Batman, but he's not. <laughs> <laughs> we're all
4: allowed to dream, Cassie, even when I we're we I know, I've got a superwoman
5: and Wonder Woman at one stage, but yeah, <laughs> he thinks he's Batman. But honest to goodness, um, it's been an absolutely amazing collaboration with Mary Ann, who's met, and Sue. Um, I wouldn't be standing here in front of you today if it wasn't for these two wonderful people um, and the staff and everything, like these guys. Um, it's, it's really been an amazing journey And I want to continue it Because I've got lots of stories to tell <laughs> And I
4: think too like it, it is for younger children But to start a conversation with older children Because I know some of you are secondary It certainly starts a conversation It I really have, does
5: I have more secondary kids Following Mr Beaky Because mm. they love his beatboxing And how he's got Will Smith and everyone else As celebrity Beyonce friends
4: If you go... He's on Insta, so if you go to Insta... Don't just do Mr Beaky, because you'll end up with a man we're not sure about.
5: Yeah, that's Mr Beaky there. And now, look, I'm going to have to do it, because you don't believe me, but this is his big (laughs) boxing.
4: it's Mr. Beaky underscore, so Mr. underscore Beaky.
1: Yeah.
4: And while you're there, just with Cassie too, Cassie also is a fashion designer and she's kicking goals with her fashion. If you go to Yang Gertie, you can look at her fashion as well, which is beautiful. And Mr. Beaky has the label because he actually
5: named that that thing. So it's been, we've been to Milan. I can even show you, Mr. Beaky went to Milan. Um, Yeah, we went to Milan and we went to, uh, yeah, then we went to New York. That's where um, the Beyonce thing comes into it. Melbourne, uh, Sydney, Darwin. And we've just done two runways. Um, And so Mr. Biggie is my logo, Young Gertie logo. Um, because it's a flying budgie. And we've actually signed on to the cycling mob, map as well, doing the flying budgie, and we're actually having budgie smugglers too. <laughs> 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 Mr Beaky does not
4: condone smuggling budgies. Okay? No, yes. he no budgie he smugglers. It.
5: But, I mean, and you just have to look at this. He does FaceTime as well to kids with autism. So we go in, and, and he's also signed up for Beyond Blue. So we're doing FaceTime with, because um, I do Lifeline. I was the first Aboriginal paramedic in Victoria. So, having having that background with the medical side, I've got lots of links and everything. So, we actually, we do um, mental health and we do awareness through Mr. Big, and he does FaceTime. So she's, look, she's like, you, You're she's going to find Bad Man here, aren't you? You find that Man. <laughs>
4: Um, did they, uh, something else. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And what we're going to do too, because Cassie does weaving and stuff. We've got weaving kits coming. But that's, a, that's top secret, isn't it?
5: Because Mr. Beaky, I've taught him to weave. So
2: yes, he can weave. <laughs>
4: There's actually footage of that on yeah. Mr. Beaky as yeah, well. Yeah,
5: you'll see. If he, he can actually weave a basket, and he got a connection with Bola Bala Arts in Central, um, oh, up north, and he weaves them a basket, and they send down this beautiful artwork. And now we've got this beautiful collaboration happening. So, um, but you have to listen to this one. This is Mr. Becky Batman. Actually,
4: my husband has been known to say to me, turn off the bloody budgie, will you? I know, it's crazy, but you've got to
5: follow him. Oh, can I just play this? You've got to listen to this one. This is cool.
4: And, it's, and through children We had children Cassie's advantage yeah. Heritage Trust We had a, two little children That were from Where were those two boys from? Um, they were A I European country yeah. somewhere. They hadn't yeah. been here long They had met Cassie At the gallery They dragged their parents yeah. To come and meet her And they made budgies And and so their connection with Aboriginal culture is amazing through this little bird. Yeah. So and that And really that's what we're trying time. to do, to make it that people just understand the importance yeah. of the culture and you come to it in a very non-judgmental, sometimes um, non-Aboriginal, non-First Nation people can feel really, I don't want to get it wrong, mm-hmm. I don't want to say the wrong
5: thing. And it doesn't matter, you just got to have a go. You it's gotta, even like, you know, the new QR codes that we're doing. We're <laughs>
7: You know, because people go, oh, I
5: can't say that, and it's like the daddy but, but the thing is, yeah, it's. Stop yeah. it, yeah. <laughs> you're <very> <laughs> what What's happening is that they're the book, they've got him on Instagram, and then you open up that. <laughs> so always was, always will be Aboriginal, agree. Um, he, they're actually connecting the book mm. with his Instagram and this is where I'm like and, they, and it is, it's like, oh you should get a QR code because it's never mm. been done. I've just done a landscape um, garden area at a, at a primary school and we're doing soundscaping and Mr Beaky has taken it over because mm. he can name every single native plant. I just show him and it's on Instagram as well. I show him the plant and he'll say what? it, Meaning what? Mm. And I don't teach him all this. I don't know where he gets it from.
4: With, um, when you look at the book, do you Ones in talking marks are actually his, things that he actually says. So we've used that as our basis yeah. for the book. But if, on that thing of frightened of saying the wrong thing, you've just got to... I, think, I heard a quote, and I'm going to paraphrase it, from Brene Brown, who I love. And she basically said, the ultimate definition of white privilege is being, um, being frightened of being uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So we've got to get uncomfortable so that we ask these questions. And it's okay not to know. And the message is that when you know better, you do better. And so we've all just got to get used to being really awkward. And I still... Faye, Cassie's too polite, but Faye, because we spend a lot of time together, she lives in Geelong, she was always going to me, oh, you didn't ask me that. I said, I did. And it was said with respect, but I really don't know that. And We've constantly got this conversation where... You know, or I'll say, look, I really need to ask you something. I don't want it to sound awful, but I'm really struggling with this. And it might be something to do with something happening. It might be Lydia Thorpe. We might talk about Lydia Thorpe. We might talk about you know, what's happening with the Hawthorne Football Club. Um, those conversations we have to have and get into the walking through the sliding door. It's not just sitting back and looking. We've actually got to take that step and learn. Because if our kids don't get it, we'll be like this in 50 years. I was having lunch with Aunty Edie, who's a um, Bardi elder from Broome, and um, Aunty Faye, who's a Boon elder, and we were talking about... It was before the election, and we were talking about the Uluru Statement of Heart, and I was like, surely we'll see it soon. And both of them said, not in our lifetime. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted to cry. I don't know. Faye's very secretive about her age. I'm thinking late 60s, seventy and 80s, probably middle 60s, and I just went, oh, come on, really? It has to be soon.
5: I mean, you look at what's happening, though, like, I mean, oh, with Black Lives Matters, Cassius like yeah, with that young fella, um, yeah, I actually, he, he was one of the boys I did mentor over the West.
4: Um, oh, you're kidding.
5: Yeah, so that's my, my friend's nephew, mm-hmm. Marissa, yeah, Burma. Um, so it, it's really hard, it's, it's really difficult, but I also, too, as I said, like, um, my daughter, I've got... a. A fair-skinned daughter and a darker daughter, and and it's so funny because they actually said to me the other day, they've said, "Mum, we actually really we got fair skin," and I, was, and I turned around and I said, "What?" And they go, like, "Oh, because we, you know, we're not going to be bashed, we're not going to be targeted." I said, "But we still get racism because we're fair-skinned." And we get cop at both ends, oh, you're not black enough to come in here, are you really Aboriginal? Or, oh, hang on, what are you doing here, sister? You know, you white girl, what, what's going on here? You, you look after you look at your mother, you, you white girl, you're not black. But I know my culture and you would. I've grown up with it, have you? Like, do you know what I mean? So there's always this racism, there's always these questions and stuff. When I go into schools and I teach young ones, I don't like to bring up the class or anything. I like to always say, I'm not here to walk before you, behind you, we're on an equal path and we've got to unite. Reconciliation, mm, might happen, might not, I don't know, but we've all got to unite at some stage. I teach the kids, even tomorrow when I take out those year nine boys. Oh, year nine,
4: stick I don't know how I'm going to <God. laughs> go. But Can you lose some? Yeah, I, I have
5: lost two in the. Time. And as I said, half the teenagers are following Mr. Beaky. They love him. Oh my God, they love him. And, and it isn't just because of, you know, his cute and his beat boxes beatboxes and stuff like that. But they, they connect like you've got no idea. The little ones here, they love him. Beaky's like, get away. Um, but the teenagers, honestly, I'm really making an impact. And I think mm-hmm. it's too because of the career mentoring I've done for so many years and, and education and stuff. So I, I'm not up here, you know... I've been there, done that, you know, and I'm here to do another journey, and that's, um, you know, children's books.
4: Mm-hmm. And on that point. More children's books too. <laughs> you know, more children's books.
5: <laughs> and, and you know what? The thing is, it's not about awards either. My award is a reward by seeing kids reading books. Messages on my phone mm. every bloody night. Sorry, I just swore, but I didn't. But reading the messages, last night I got one, right? I've just got to share it with you because it, it is absolutely... It
4: While you look, I'll just say um, yeah, go. thank go. you. Yeah, thank you very much. We'll be fluffing around here afterwards if you'd like to ask us any questions. And anyone that wasn't as brave as... I can't read your name from here, so this lovely man. Um, anyone who wasn't as brave but really wants to ask something of Cassie, please do. Mm, thank you.
5: And th- this, is, this is just a message um, from the book. Um, a whole school at Bacchus Marsh Primary School have done um, three canvases and they've got all the kids there's three non-Indigenous oh sorry, there's three Indigenous and the rest are non-Indigenous kids, but they actually got the three children to read Mr Beaker's book and then they all got together and they painted Mr Beaker's book on three canvases and she said the amazing thing is, is the connection, the caring for each other and the identity because it all fits in but that, that, they're standing up proud going, I'm actually Aboriginal, and they're standing proud. And they've got really significant families. So um, thank you, Mr. and thank you, um, Wild of Books, because without you guys, um, yeah, I all be here. So thank you so much. Actually, I should say that none of the June means thank you. None of the thank you. Oh,
4: I'm you positive. can. Yeah. Yeah. can
5: we
0: just say thank you? <laughs> <laughs> thank you. she's worked at Reading's Carlton store. Currently, she's assistant manager but has held various roles at the bookstore since 2007. She's passionate about kids' YA literature and is a voracious reader of crime fiction. Ooh, I must have talked talk to you about yeah. that. In <laughs> 2021, she joined the judging panel for Reading's YA prize, and that is the focus of today's presentation. Welcome, Julia. Thanks, Glad you're here. Thank you. <laughs>
7: I'm so pleased to get here. I don't have any slides. I'm very, very sorry. I've been trying to wrangle my 60 plus staff into some form of Christmas roster, so <laughs> oh, it's like herding cats, but never mind. And I'm, Mr. Beaky is really hard act to follow, so I'm sorry, <laughs> everybody. Um, okay, so the, the thing that um that meant a little bit more about me is I started life as a kids and YA bookseller. I have worked for as a bookseller since I was um, 18. Um, I'm approaching 40. But um, one of the things I have always loved, and since we have split off our kids' store from the main Carlton store, it's really hard for me to access YA literature, which is an area that I love, partly because quite often the writing is so much better than adult literature, and I'm sure most of you can agree. Um, So I was chair of the judges' uh, panel for the YA prize for the last year. I signed up at the end of 2021 not really knowing what was in store for me or exactly how many books I would end up reading. Um, the prizes, are there are um, one umbrella of prize and three categories, so kids, a YA and an adult literature. And they were actually started as a way of um, shining light on emerging and new writers. Um, my very famous, well, she, she's very famous among these parts, but um, Emily Gale, who used to be our kids buyer, she um, poked Mark in the elbow and a couple of times said, Oi, what about kids' writers? Why are kids' writers getting a look in with these prizes are where are, the, where are the, the, the prizes for the emerging young adult market because at that time text prize has their unpublished manuscript award but there have, and obviously the CBCA awards, but they're often going to established authors, and this is a, a category of prizes that go to Emerging emerging writers, new ta- new talent, or even established writers who are making a switch into young adult market, like Nunn, who has written. She is South African by heritage, um, and by birth, she now lives in Australia. is an Australian citizen, so that's why she gets um, a Guernsey with this shortlist. Um, but she has she's a very well established uh, crime fiction writer, and she's written four novels for the adult market, but this is her first young adult book, and my God, was this a cracker. This is probably our runner-up choice for uh, the prize winner uh, for that category. I should say that um, when I did sign up, and my colleagues Clodagh and Mike Shuttleworth, who you will also know, um, signed up to do the, the YA prize last year, we were in lockdown, and then we weren't sure with all the issues with printing presses and publication delays, how, just how many books are we going to read? We ended up reading 30. That's a really manageable amount for a short list. The the Adult Fiction Prizes, my colleague Ty at the back will know, they had about 60 books to read, which is no mean feat. Um, one of the things that we really loved as a group, Mike, Clona and I, with reading the books was... Being able to discuss them amongst ourselves and talk about the shortlist in a really conspiratorial way, and be like, "Ooh, we're on the inside and we know what we're on the know. We're in the know about something that nobody else is privy to." Because one of the things that was really important for the readings prizes when Mark established them was the fact that the booksellers and the staff took ownership of the judging. So, um, our, the winning once we've decided on the shortlist, the our final meeting to, de- to decide the winner. Um, the guest judge for that for that year is last year's winner. So this year we were joined by Asphyxia in deciding the winner of our Young Adult Fiction Prize. And we, we went with Underground. And I had the immense pleasure last night of being at the la- at the prize awards and speaking with my ho Bill Cantwell and Jane McLean, whose stories make up this book. Um, One of the things that, as judges, we had to consider was, you know, the the amount of work that goes into writing a book. It takes forever to write a a picture book. It takes forever to write a prose novel. It takes so, so long still to be illustrating a graphic novel as well as providing the text, but also making it coherent and accessible and... um, uh, Attractive to a wide range of, of writers and uh, readers, um, we we didn't really expect to see this come up on our um, prize reading as for eligible um, books, but Alan Unwin got it with got it in with the hashtag of OZWA, and so that's what ultimately I think got it over the line because it and into the and and for consideration by us because. Um, it does. It, it is one of those books that you would probably um, sell for, or have kids read at like the upper end of high school, um, and some reluctant readers as well. It's fairly easy to dip in and out of too. But it's really great as a text, I think, for classrooms because you can analyze one chapter. You can analyze Jean's story. You can analyze um, Hooper the wombat story and why why Clifton Pugh, why Clifton Pugh decided that he would he would try and dodge the draft by, you know, putting his pet wombat in it. Um, And this is one of the things that we all, as a group, and even our guest judge, we loved about this and the experience of reading this and, and naming this as the winner was that there's a really complete world that Miranda Burton has created with this book. She tackles the difficult issues of intergenerational trauma, war... A, um, it's a really interesting narrative legacy. It's very local to Melbourne. It's very it's a very local and social history. Um, and I loved, I loved Jean's story. She is the way that Miranda has written her is exactly Jean because she's such a strong, resilient woman who is very steadfast and very determined. And the determination that Jean and Bill have and my whole as well in, in, in each of them uh, are things that as young people reading books they're good messages to take away. And we, we look, we had lots of great books that were each had you know ticked all those boxes of you know tapping into diverse audiences, diverse characters, diverse cultures. Um, we had the shortlist, you know, we had very different genres contemporary urban fantasy set in Melbourne in the near future. We had a really fabulous, good old-fashioned ghost story with a bit of witchiness thrown in. We had a really great, very tightly written um, book about um, coming to terms with grief and loss and, and and dealing with the feeling of being uprooted as a young person and not really knowing how to deal with that and being like really disconnected from yourself, your friends, your family, even to some extent. And this is a fantastic book too. Sunberg Veils. This is the um, Wakefield Press. This is their um, addition addition to the shortlist. Something that we had to consider as a judging panel when shortlisting the books was thinking about the the books that really needed a boost and were worthy of a boost by us as booksellers. Um, And... Wakefield press and um, Sarah Hodoty's Sunbird valleys is one of those this is more of the sort of new adult um, sort of age range so anywhere from like 15 to 22 I'll probably give this to unfortunately oh, this is one of those books that oh, the cover is the big letdown but the book is fantastic it's yeah unfortunately design really does have an impact on 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 books and readership and of course melon I'm sure we tell you this is or like Gemma, model. Um, I'm happy to answer questions if people have anything that they'd like to specifically ask. How am I going for time? You've got a couple of minutes.
0: All right. We can, we
7: can, we can... Um. Well, look. I suppose I could just mention that that being a judge a judge on the the panel was a really great experience and something I'd not done before. I've done book reviews for you know years now, but reading books for awards judging and Alita would know this, is you really have to read with a different headset and a different viewpoint and thinking a little bit more outside the box of you know your own you've got to be really objective about it too, but thinking about you know the applicability of the story and, and the book and the content to a wide range of people um, another, another consideration for us as booksellers is is the subject matter going to be really easy to hand sell? Is it a book that we're just going to be able to go, here, read this to a panicked parent or a panicked teacher or, you know, somebody trying to put together a prize list for students at the end of the year? These are all considerations that we've had to sort of make do. Yeah. So is there a criteria that you judge to that's consistent over the
4: years, or does
7: it have um, to It's sort of developed some changes, but this, the, the main considerations are does ambition... Does the execution of the book meet its ambition? Are the characters relatable? Does the author have a, an awareness of like the this book and where it would sit within the whole context of Australian YA writing? Um, and yeah, other things like is it going to be easy for us to hand sell? Is the is the book accessible? Is it can it be given easily as a class text in a co-ed? You know, you know middle school, Year 7, Year 8, Year 9 class group, or is it something that's going to be for a little bit a little bit younger kids? This, this, um, We ended up with a, a short list that really, I think, goes, covers the whole breadth of like, uh, 10, 11-year-old kids right through to you know, 20, nine, 18, 19, 20, and even beyond, because Underground's just a fantastic book. I highly recommend anybody pick that up. I'm quite happily to it rusted at people mm. over Christmas mm. because of that. So yeah, so there there is are some of the basic mm. things. Yeah. Underground, because I didn't
2: mention it, but I really felt that that was a great history textbook. Yes, absolutely, yeah.
7: absolutely, and without having it shoved down your face. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah that that because the last thing that kids want is is that kind of didactic approach. Yeah. This really, for us, it was really great because it told. Bill Jean and my host stories and they were relatable as young people then and this is my my dad's youth the Vietnam war and so having kids reading stories about our parents and our grandparents and our aunts and uncles generations and the sort of upheaval that they had in their lives with the onset of the Vietnam war and the you know not knowing if you're going to have your your conscription ball come, drawn out of the 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 barrel, um, and you know, you think about the, the pressures that kids are going through now, and the pressures, they're not that different. It's really, yeah, so it's quite, it's, it's quite, a, quite a fantastic book for that, so, plus their illustrations mm-hmm. are extraordinary. Yeah. That, uh,
0: you've read quite a few things. Oh yeah, yeah. Can you see any trends in relation to diversity representation?
7: Yeah, absolutely. Is so, like that are jumping out of you that have we, the, look, oh, of about 30 books that we read for the the, um, the prize reading for consideration about probably two-thirds were um, culturally and linguistically diverse characters. We a lot of LGBTQI representation, um, a lot of stories about um, young people finding their place, um, coming to terms with family history, family trauma, Disconnection, displacement. Um, oh yeah, there were, whole, there were heaps. Yeah, and so there are some trends that are definitely come through. I mean, there's a lot of like, there's a aside from all of this, there's just a really big push for crime fiction for young for young people. So, um, Ty's got Killing Code up there, which is fantastic, and her first book, None Shall Sleep, is like. Silence of the Lambs for young people, and it's <laughs> good. Um, it's one of the creepiest books I've ever read. And, um, yeah, so there's, there are some distinct trends that are coming through. I think what we're really finding now is that there's a, a bit of a niche that's being carved off between adult literature and young adult literature, and it's like a Venn diagram, and in the middle, that little middle bit is the new adult, so it's your your 18 to 25-year-olds, people like your Sally Rooney's, your Colleen Hoovers, your Nina Kenwood, Malin Nunn, obviously, um, Miranda Burton, um, Sarah Hadusty, all of those people who are dealing with, you know, the things that young people don't really get to read about or haven't really had an opportunity to be reading about, you know, when you leave school, what's next, you know, what happens. You're in this sort of little bit of a limbo between ending school and starting university. And it's a huge challenge to adapt to that, you know, from a very rigid environment of school to a mm. to a university where it's just like, oh yeah, it's like that. So, yeah. Any other questions? Yeah. I know we
8: No. all want all these We had the majority of them as and we well, had some of And we brought it in as a in the library that everybody we Of course. they've all disappeared off the shelf. Not online. No. They've been stolen. Yeah. 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 Some of them are okay. very explicit. So yep. really
0: Probably,
7: probably it's just a, a few notes from as a bookseller. It's it is really hard to. It, I suppose from one level, it's all about we need even though the the quality of the writing in those books isn't that great. Um, to be honest, um, we still have to stop them because it's about access. In the same way that, um, and one of the things that for, for schools in particular, I think it's. We had the same issues with Harry Potter and, you know, that fantasy element that with Harry Potter that we're now seeing with, with Colleen Hoover. We saw it a little bit with Bridgerton and Julia Quinn's books, but I think that, you know, now that we... I suppose that, you know, Julia Quinn is probably like the Georgette Hire of the 21st century, but really tapping into that the diversity market a little bit more with, with their characters. But um, Colleen Hoover, yeah, I'm not sold on her, but um, yeah, it is, it, is a, it is an important question, and as booksellers, we sort of tackle it with parents by just asking as many questions as we possibly can about how reading age, reading level, uh, you know, maturity, I suppose, comes into it a lot, too. Obviously, we wouldn't be Farming these books out to kids who really couldn't handle that sort of content. Yeah, I do remember that Carrie Greenwood of Friday Fisher fame. She wrote a very explicit kids' book years ago called The Child Stone Cycle, and my mother gave me a copy of that, and I was shocked. I have say, I was absolutely shocked that she would give that to me, but um, because like it was, it was not an area of Literature that I would normally read in, so for her to just randomly give me a romance novel <laughs> was kind of weird. <laughs> but yeah, there are, there are eternal questions like
0: that. Yeah. Um, can I suggest, you know, maybe you chat with other people? Yeah. Know, the that's the thing. And of course, that's what we're here, isn't it? We're here to we learn from each other and learn about what's going on so that we can be better informed. Mm. And that's why we need qualified, competent school librarians. Mm.
7: Yeah. And, and just, just sure. sort of one last thing. It was, there was a little bit of, like, not opposition, but hesitation amongst the colleagues, the wider staff group, when we chose this as the winner, because of A, the content, A, the format, A, the content, B, the format, it just didn't really fit into a neat little box. And, um, and some, some of my colleagues found that a little bit challenging. And it is challenging. But that's good. Like it's important I think to sort of be challenged by books and difference. So anyway. thanks everybody. Thank you. <laughs>
0: Annabelle now represents some of Australia's most loved writers and illustrators for young people. With a collaborative and open approach, Annabelle focuses on work that showcases the depth of the Australian experience and enjoys nothing more than helping children's creators find international recognition and success. And I'm certainly looking forward to hearing her perspective on the idea of fostering diversity and representation. Thank you very much for being here, Annabelle.
3: Thank you very much. Nice to meet you. all. Um, I just wanted to say, first of all, so nice to meet you all. Um, I don't often get a chance to talk directly to uh, school librarians. Like it's such a, a different part of the industry, but I think it's really interesting um, in the way that Susan's put this event together because it's so great to have people from such a different, you know, different areas of the business, from from booksellers to school librarians and. Um, you know, and writers and, and illustrators too, talking to such a, an interested group of people, so thank you for um, having me along today. Um, as Susan indicated, I'm a literary agent, and um, so I, I guess I'm representing the agenting, publishing side of the spectrum today. Um, and for those of you who might not know, a literary agent is kind of an advocate for writers and illustrators. We work directly with um, with writers and help them prepare their work for publication. And uh, I guess today my talk is going to be a little bit about pathways for writers and illustrators. So, talking about how, um, you know, right at the beginning of the spectrum, um, writers all the way through publishing and book selling and teach librarians, how we reach children and how um, books have to go through a really long process to get to, to kids themselves. So, and that's particularly important for us um, at the start of the start of the journey. Um, so, some of you might ask what a literary agent does. Um, and that's fair enough. Not every writer and, and illustrator has an agent in Australia. It's more common in America and, and the UK, perhaps. Um, some authors and illustrators just start straight out with publishers, and that's that's very normal um, here in Australia. Literary agents potentially work with writers who have, um, you know, maybe early on in their careers or, or really are trying to establish a career in, in writing and illustration. And uh, they're kind of the people that I tend to work with. Um, in, in uh, my role. So I, um, I just work with children's and young adult writers and illustrators. I don't work with people who write for grown-ups unless um, my writers and illustrators decide to write all um, the books, which sometimes they do. Um, but I have had a really long career in children's publishing before I worked in this role. So hopefully I can give a little bit of an understanding of um, the publishing side of the spectrum as well. So the the things that I do in my role, I work with writers, um, I I guess the first thing I do is try and find new writers and illustrators. Um, That's the first part of what I do and perhaps one that's really relevant to this conversation around diversity and representation in in, uh, kids' books. Uh, I then help uh, these writers and illustrators prepare their work um, for for submission to publishers and then I work with them in kind of deciding who they might end up um, partnering with here and internationally as well. I manage all the back end of their um, career, like all the contracting and negotiating and um, doing things like making sure they get paid and handing in their work on time and meeting schedules and things like that. And then I also work with them on, um, you know, maybe looking for avenues that they might like to develop in their careers and working as a bit of a sort of career coach along the side, um, holding their hand through the process of of becoming, um, you know, establishing their career in, in writing and illustration. Um, So that's kind of what I do day to day. I thought a really interesting thing um, might be just to look at a a bit of a few statistics in in context of what's kind of happening in the publishing side of things. And um, really helpfully, um, this fantastic report came out from Victoria University a couple of weeks ago, and it's the first ever First Nations and People of Colour count um, from the publishing um, sector. And I'm just going to scroll down if I can manage um so basically um, this count was published by Dr. Natalie Con who is who um, is a, a professor at uh, Victoria University and some of you I don't know if anyone, anyones seen this really excellent report it just really just came out um, and it's the first example of actual data being collated to help us recognize the inequalities that exist throughout the Australian publishing landscape uh, the datas from 2018 so obviously it takes some time to prepare this kind of research. So I think there's probably been some changes made um, in the industry since then. It's been a really big topic, um, diversity and and representation in publishing over the last few years, but still really good to see um, where we were at a couple of years ago and maybe how we've changed now. Um, With Natalie's permission, I'm I'm happy to um, show you this infographic today Um, and just to note that it only looks at cultural inequalities. so I'm not ignoring the fact that there's other there's other inequalities in other areas of publishing, like disability and religion and um, sexual orientation and gender, and all of these things obviously need to be of consideration as well. But uh, this report looks at the cultural identity of around 1,500 books, authors of books um, published in Australia in 2018. So they had this, they got this data from Nielsen BookScan, which is um, a kind of collation of Uh, all the books that are published in Australia. They measure sales, uh, so that's a really good um, source of data for publishers in Australia, just to see how books are selling and for book sales too. (laughs) And so they collected 1,500 books. This is all of the books that were published that year. um, Having taken out books that were not relevant, they felt due to the fact they were self-published or um, cookbooks and sort of they felt didn't necessarily meet this particular criteria that they were measuring. And they calculated um, basically how many books were published by, sorry, written by First Nations authors, uh, people of colour, international First Nation authors and other authors. So other is not necessarily just white people. I think it's good to note that uh, the way that they categorised this was um, only if the author themselves identified in a particular group, so obviously they weren't—they um, you know, weren't trying to seek out information from people unless they were really comfortable, um, kind of sourcing that information, uh, focusing that information themselves. So, I thought I'd focus on the kids and YA bit, since we're talking about that area mainly. So this is uh, <coughs> the area they looked at in children's. So children's is everything from picture books up to middle grade and young adult books is obviously what it is, uh, kind of 12 plus, 14 plus. And um, as you can see here, um, of the 245 books that they that were published or books that they measured in this survey, 3% were by First Nations writers and 11% by writers of colour. And in the young adult uh, books, there were 76 that they looked at or that were published and uh, 3% were written by First Nations writers, uh, but only 3% by writers of colour. So I think that's um, really interesting in the context of what we're talking about today. There is still a really stark disparity between um, the demographic, or sorry, the population of Australia, uh, which is which is around 20... 25% of Australians are from non-European backgrounds, which is how they categorised... Um, this group of people, writers of colour, and Indigenous writers, all together. So it doesn't, um, you know, it doesn't really equate with, with with our population. And I think that's really important for kids, because obviously we've heard from Alida and and everyone else here today that um, children need to be able to see themselves in books and see others as well. And if we're not quite meeting that the, the uh, population demographic of Australia, then it's probably not quite good enough yet um, in how we're going. So. Um, yeah, I think those, those findings are really interesting. And, and I think it's so great that this is being measured because we all talk about this as being an issue and we all kind of have a feeling that it's not right yet and there's lots of work to be done. But it, having, it, having this kind of information on um, for us to as a resource is, is really helpful um, just to have a, a really good understanding of what's happening uh, in the Australian industry. So I spoke to Natalie about her research yesterday and she said she really wanted to make sure that um, that then with this research they're not trying to apportion any kind of blame on the industry and that there's a lot of structural and kind of systematic um, issues that create this kind of issue. And, um, you know, the, the inequality that still exists in the publishing world is not necessarily through people not wanting to do the right thing. I think it's just, um, you know, a, a succession of different issues that have, have kind of related together to... Um, To happen, and there is a lot of people who are really eager to see some change. So it's good to um, just good to be able to acknowledge that this is this is happening. Um, So I maybe just like to talk a little bit about the practicalities of um, the way the industry is kind of working toward improving diversity and under-representation in in books. And this is really my experience, and this is not going to be um, you know. it's Not every not everybody feels the same, I guess. It's, it's what, I, what I see day to day, and I'm sure Marianne can talk to this issue as well as another mm-hmm. publisher in the room. But um, one of the things... So there, I think there's three kind of areas that the publishing industry is kind of working toward uh, to improve representation. And um, in some areas we're going better than others, and still a long way to go, but maybe um, worth just considering what's kind of happening. The first one is... Um, the elephant in the room um, for all of us is the lack of diversity and representation within the um, publishing industry itself, and by that I mean employees in the industry. It's not so much always about the writers and illustrators, and for us, it's a really it's an important recognition that there's not a lot of representation of people working in the industry um, themselves. So, I think it's um, it's really good to have a bit of a look at ourselves. Um, you know, I started working out working in children's publishing around 20 years ago, and you know, I was a young, white, university-educated, middle-class person, and it was not easy for me to, to start working in publishing. But compared to, you know, I'm conscious that the privilege that I had, um, you know, I, I was able to take a low-wage position at the time, and I was able to, you know, find ways to access the industry in ways that a lot of people are just not able to in Australia. And that's still current now, and that's still a really big problem for the industry to um, manage. And, uh, yeah, I think there is a lot of things happening now that are starting to improve that, that bias against, um, you know, more underprivileged people who are not able to access the industry as well. And, uh, you know, there's things like paid internships, mentorships. Um, publishers are now trying to advertise more widely for roles, they're improving flexibility and pay for employees. Um, you know, there, there are more and more good ways forward uh, that are opening the doors for uh, diverse publishing employees, and I think that will be a really big step toward finding uh, a broader base of writers and illustrators as well. So, um, yeah, that's, that's one area. A second area is, um, and I think an area that some publishing houses are really uh, actively doing a good job of now is just demystifying the publishing process. Mm. And I think that's another reason why it's really good to talk to people in this room today because often the industry can be very opaque and a lot of people don't know what a literary agent does. A lot of people don't know what um, publishing, you know, the kinds of roles that you can have in a publishing career. A lot of people start out in publishing saying, oh, I want to be an editor, but there is like a massive spectrum of jobs that you can do in the publishing arena and uh, sometimes that can be very opaque and very hard for people to see that there's lots of roles, sales, marketing, production, design, um, editorial, of course, uh, rights, international sales. There's lots and lots of different opportunities for people to work in books, on the publishing side of books. And um, I'd really love to see more forums and documentation that remove that kind of opaqueness Around, around publishing, and I think some publishers are starting to do a kind of better job of that. Um, and the, th- the third area today, and, and maybe the one that's potentially most relevant, is how we're working better to find writers and illustrators who might be from a diverse background or from an underrepresented background. And um, that's not always such an easy task. Um, you know, speaking from my own experience, when I open my submissions to new writers... Um, it's it's sometimes really hard to hear from underrepresented um, groups of people, and you know I guess there's a lot of structural issues that we have to confront in order to get past those barriers. Um, and I think I, th- I think a lot about that because you know it's it's needing to access different groups of people then perhaps fall into my spectrum of of my world uh, is a really Important thing, I think, for me to confront, and for other people in the industry to confront too. Um, so, in terms of really trying to make deliberate actions, you know, I'm, I'm trying to personally to advertise for submissions on websites that might not necessarily be accessed, well, that might be accessed more freely by a bit more diverse group of people, and prioritising submissions from writers who might um, identify as underrepresented backgrounds. That means sometimes um, investing financially in. In sensitivity readers or um, second readers, you know, different ways for to try and find people who might not um, necessarily come to me as easily as they might have otherwise. Um, I'm also trying to find writing, um, and it was interesting hearing Julia say this too—that it's not necessarily issues-based writing or that it falls under the spe- you know this area of otherness. Know, romantic comedies and and you know, funny books and um, genre-based books and crime novels and things that come from underrepresented writers, but are not necessarily about mm-hmm. difference, uh, is a really an area that I'm really trying to focus on, as well um, across the spectrum of what I look after. Um, so yeah, so those are the the three areas. But I guess what I did want to say is. You know, it's, from my perspective, it's really important to, to, to take some really deliberate and conscious action to, to try and find um, more diverse and under, underrepresented writers. So, you know, if we can all partner in, in doing that and, and trying to do better um, across the industry, I think that will be a really big step forward and hopefully something we can achieve as a as a group, um, you know, looking after children's books.
8: So, thanks everyone.
3: Any questions? Too. I'd love to love to make more of you afterwards. So. Thank
0: you. Excellent.
3: Thank you. Small token. Thank you very much. Thank you, Annabel. That was fantastic. It's so
0: interesting to get the truth. Yeah.
6: Um, we'll I, have, so. I think I have three, months, of <laughs> um <laughs> Yes, what can I say I get about, guys? Um, most of you will already be across the books I'm about to talk to you about, but I want to bring this one to your attention again. Most of you will have this in your libraries by now if you don't really. It's Jane Cork. Um, but I just want to give you a quick reminder because I know that you guys are super, super busy and you don't have time to read everything. This looks like a middle grade book. I know you hate that word. Sometimes. I do no, I hate that word. I'm sorry. What? Middle grade is not, not so really a um, there's no such thing.
0: There's no such thing. Oh,
6: sorry. This looks like middle grade. It really Something is not middle grade. It's actually quite scary. And I read it at home alone at night <laughs> it was a really bad idea. <laughs> um, Janie can do scary really well, and she has done an extraordinary job with this book in particular. There's also a little bit of romance, it's perfectly innocent, nothing really, it's not calling her. Um, yeah, just to, a little reminder about this one, try to sell it to your older students. I know it's gonna be hard with that cover, maybe do the wrap it in brown paper surprise thing for your kids. Um, Finally, we have a new Nova Wheatman. For those of you who don't know, if you, like me, have a steady stream of kids coming in and out of the library and the bookstore saying, has Nova Wheatman written anything else? She finally has. This, again, is a little bit older, so just sort of a step above the age of 13. Um, But doing what Nova does so well, that heartfelt, really insightful, emotive, um, beautiful look into how teenage girls... Really. Um, So, yeah, definitely. If you haven't read this one, if you make time to read just like one book this term, please make it this one. Um, Or actually, this one. So, So I had the very great pleasure of being an Ampersand Prize judge at Hardy Grant when we found Rhiannon Williams. For those of you who have never heard of her, um, I'm not surprised. That makes me really sad. She wrote this incredible trilogy called Odderley Coulter and the Narrowway Hunt, and it is hands down one of the best fantasy trilogies ever written in the history of... ever. Um, And it came to us almost fully formed. I think, Annabelle, you were there when it came to us. Um, It was absolutely magnificent. Terrifying monsters, incredible world-building. She just has such an exquisite imagination. She's also fantastic as a person to have come visit your schools, although she is very shy, so be quiet around her. Um, this is her new book, Duffy in the Out Wilds. I'm only halfway through it, but it is just as good as Oddly Coulter, if not better, and her growth as a writer, which I didn't think was possible. Ugh, just outstanding, slightly younger than Oddly, um, but also find for kids who loved Oddly Coulter and want something more from her. This is more um, urban fantasy, magic in the real world, um, and it's all about a young girl who goes looking for her mysterious aunt Meg after the bushland property that she and her family own is under threat from a force. I will not go into because it's a spoiler. Anyway, read it. Um, it is excellent. As Julia said, everybody knows Elimani. We love her. I'm really sorry for whoever published this book, Alan Nunman, that it looks like a proof, um, which is unfortunate, um, but it's excellent. It's set in 1943, a group of uh, young girls have been recruited as code breakers, and one day one of their roommates goes missing, and the grisly discovery of her body alerts a bunch of people to the fact that there is a serial killer running rampant through Washington, D.C., of course, no one's going to do anything about that except for these amazing young women who take matters into their own hands and solve the crime. Uh, but it is genuinely scary. If the other one was Silence of the Lambs for children, I would. What would you call this one, Julia? Um. Almost like Red Dragon for children. We used to do Mem Fox at Penguin. Um, I think it's, sound it's, it's not a famous. She's American. Movie. Movie.
7: No, Ellie's yeah. she, yeah.
6: she does now. Although Kirsty Murray came into readings kids the other day and I thought she was everybody. <laughs> Don't um, make that mistake, friends. They <laughs> the same. I was like, oh, Ellie, it's so good to see you. She was like, Kirsty, I get that all the time. I was like, oh. just get it going. Never working books again. Uh, Full disclaimer, Sally Rippon is a very good friend of mine and my landlord. That's not why I'm talking about this book. Um, I'm talking about this book because she has partnered with the very talented um, singer-songwriter Eliza Hull to put together Come Over to My House. They're working on another book for next year, which I had to read aloud to Sally today so that she could make sure it was going to work in story time. Um, It's really beautiful. I think Eliza agonised to almost the point of too much when they were putting this book together, but I think they've done a really beautiful job. Um, For those of you who haven't seen it yet, the illustrations are just really bright and really fun. It is just a really sweet read aloud and absolutely worth reading to kids of all ages. In fact, if I was still in my school library, I would because they
0: love writing books. And that's Do you get a discount on the grid now? Because no, no, she's I didn't not know. talking about it. Okay.
5: So I could say anything. You could mm-hmm. But it is very good. You won't. <laughs> I don't
6: know about that. But yeah, that's it for me. Anyone who has any questions, feel free to come and ask. Uh, book, sales, book sales up the back. And if you would like a copy of The Fabulous Mr. Ah. Beaky, come and see our darling Marianne. Because my stop order didn't arrive in the time, which is not Marianne's <laughs> fault. I'd
0: like to point that out. Um, okay, thank you for talking to us. Thank you, Ty. Isn't she wonderful? She's always fantastic.